I'll never forget the feeling of wonder that came over me when I saw my first firefly. I'm sure many parents, including my own, have ingrained in their memories the light that such a sight brought to their children's eyes. I remember feeling both amazed and utterly grossed out at the sight of all the smushed bugs throughout my dad's car grill when he came home from a long road trip. My parents recall with great joys memories of catching horny toads that were as numerous on the Texas plains as fire ants and flies are today. These fond memories are harder to recreate these days. Many of us feel a creature-shaped hole in our lives, but have no clue how it got there, nor did we notice this process unfolding. We don't need a statistic to tell us that something is direly wrong. I could sit here and tell you how species are disappearing at a thousand times their natural extinction rate, 45,000 times for amphibians, or how we lose 200 species a day, but no numbers can reach you like the realization that your own kids are missing out on a beautiful part of life that once filled you with awe. I haven't seen a firefly since I was a little kid. The car comes back from road trips a little cleaner than it used to. The closest thing I've ever seen to a horned frog is a mascot at a college football game. These are just some of the ways that the global ecological crisis has hit home in my own life. Today, I want to tell you another story from home. In 2014, my hometown of Denton, Texas became the first city to ban hydraulic fracturing, also known as fracking. Fracking is a process for extracting natural gas using high-pressure injection of water, sand, and chemicals into the ground. This creates cracks in the rocks through which natural gas and petroleum can flow freely. Fracking processes have been linked to higher rates of serious illness and have been proven to cause serious upticks in earthquakes and other seismic activity, as well as major water shortages. After tireless work organizing a citywide campaign, Denton citizens got an initiative on the local ballot and voters came out in droves. At the end of election day, opponents of fracking walked away with a major victory. We played the game by the rules and got rewarded. The end. Democracy hard at work right? Well, here's where it gets complicated. If you know anything about Texas, you know that Texans have a stubborn self-image. Texas is the only state in the Union that was once its own country, and Texans claim a dogged, independent spirit. If you hear a politician claiming about the feds trampling on the little guy, they're probably from Texas. You might get the impression that Texas would embrace a bottom-up, grassroots democracy for all its exaltation of the little guy. But it turns out, the state of Texas isn't against supreme federal power out of principled love for local control. They just want to be the top of the food chain. To give one example, for years I heard talking heads and politicians from my state rail against Common Core, big government intervention in the education system. I would have thought that they dreamed of a self-directed education system free from standardization, but turns out they just wanted students to be forced to learn their standards. Now back to the story. Not too long after our ban, the state of Texas, remember the champions of local rights, passed a law that essentially said cities can't ban fracking. We the common people played the role of active citizens and took on the corporate giants 
but our champion was nowhere to be found. That is, until they came back with a piece of paper at the end of a metaphorical bayonet, pointed straight at us, of course. As you can imagine, the whole town was outraged. Never fear, our duly elected and honorable city council would save us. More shattered dreams. They actually rolled over and threw up their hands. Sorry. So everyday people went out to where the machines were set to begin fracking and physically put their bodies in front of them, finally bringing the machines to a halt. The city council sent out the police and arrested the people for enforcing the ban. After continued arrests, the energy died down and the police were able to overpower the people. The fracking continues to this day, despite Denton being consistently ranked worst air quality in Texas. What are the lessons here? First, we truly stopped fracking when everyday people put their bodies on the line. It wasn't politicians, it wasn't corporations, it wasn't nonprofits. It was the community affected by it, organizing themselves non-hierarchically that made the machines stop. The government rolled over, the cops followed orders, we only had each other. Second, the state of Texas, always the first to complain when the US government usurps states' rights, immediately did the exact same thing to a local community. People in my community will suffer from waves of unexplained illnesses and higher incidences of asthma, eczema, and similar diseases for a long time to come. We have already seen frequent earthquakes in our area that never happened before politicians and companies forced through fracking that we didn't want. They get to stay comfortable in their mansions, in unpolluted areas, while we have the worst air quality in Texas. Before fracking, the fault lines we sit on had been inactive for 330 million years. The Fort Worth Basin had never recorded an earthquake before 2008. In the 10 years since, we've had hundreds. They awoke a sleeping giant, and the ones behind the decisions will likely escape the consequences. This isn't a misanthropic, humans are inevitably destructive story. This is above all a story of power. It is a story of local knowledge, of those who see the closest to what helps and what harms biodiversity and health in their on-the-ground realities, being everywhere assaulted by impositions from top-down, physically and culturally distanced elites. Rex Tillerson, former Trump Secretary of State, who has a home in a nearby town, was a huge advocate of fracking when it was in our town. There has not been a documented case of, of substantial or even, I would argue, insignificant contamination of fresh water as a result of hydraulic fracturing. But sued when it was planned to go through his backyard. That's a problem of hierarchy. He knew the dangers of fracking. He was willing to play the game just as long as those dangers remained away from him and he had the power to make sure that happened, unlike the rest of us. The most destructive decisions worldwide are those made by people who will never have to live with them. Just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global carbon emissions. These 100 companies' execs, who never have to live in the communities they pollute, make the decisions that affect all the rest of us, the decisions that are ultimately destroying the planet. We didn't need scientists to know that fracking was going to hurt our health, our quality of life, the beauty and biodiversity of our landscapes. We could see it in our everyday realities. Yet by respecting the authority of the state, we let those who don't live in our town, who don't have to suffer the brunt, 
decide what was best for us. With no structures of our own, what choice did we have? Faced with overwhelming evidence that our current extractive and grow-or-die economy is killing the planet, the state is embracing extraction and grow-or-die imperatives, privatizing more and more formerly protected land for extraction. The global market is based on the idea of grow-or-die, but we live on a planet with finite resources. Since 1970 alone, the number of land animals has declined by 40%, We've lost four-fifths of all freshwater species, and we've wiped out more fish in terms of biomass than what is currently left in fisheries worldwide. Ecosystems are chain reactions. Every species affects all the others, so don't expect that our current lifestyle is sustainable. This isn't just species going extinct. Scientists consider this the sixth mass extinction event in the planet's history, and the first brought on by human activity. Yet every day on the news, I hear talking heads bowing down to worship the god of economic growth. Something has got to give. What I am saying is that it is only in the last few hundred years, with the rise of global capitalism, which depends on endless growth, and highly mechanized state-style socialism, that the planet has faced such an existential threat from humans. This standard of living, this reality where everyone has an iPhone, everyone has a personal car, is going to disappear sooner than you think. We put temporary comforts ahead of long-term sustainability. I don't know what is going to replace capitalism or state socialism, but something will have to, and fast. Between ecological destruction and rapid automation, the traditional old-style economies are becoming obsolete. The question we have to ask is do we want bureaucratic, techno-elite, monolithic, and hierarchical systems to be the replacement? Or do we want self-organized, organic, and non-hierarchical systems fit to the needs of local communities to replace the old? If we accept the premise that those closest to the consequences of a decision know best how to make that decision, then we know that any future sustainable economy will have to be powered by strong, decentralized communities. In order to build strong communities, we have to overcome the social isolation that we have grown so accustomed to here in America and places like it. Not so long ago in America, most of us belonged to social clubs in our towns that tied us to one another. We often voluntarily chipped in to local funds so that if a neighbor got sick, we could help them cover their care. If a person responsible for reporting children or spouses died, we could make sure the surviving family members were provided for. Since the 1980s, and really before that, there's been a major push towards individualization of activity in many parts of the so-called developed world. Individual expression as consumers, individualized notions of self-care from a hard day that seeks relief in isolating ourselves in the bathtub, in meditation, or in binge-watching a Netflix series on our phone, the list goes on. We are replacing activities traditionally done in community with activities done alone or in very small groups. To give you an idea of just how bad this has gotten, consider this. There were more Americans involved in bowling clubs in the 1970s than there are Americans involved in any organized extracurricular activity today. By getting to know our neighbors on a more tangible level and re-establishing networks of shared survival, we can rebuild strong communities creating a local base that is collectively in tune to our local needs and desires. Within these communities, 
we can begin to take back power over the decisions that affect our lives. How does this relate to the loss of biodiversity, ecosystem destruction, and fracking from the beginning of this video? If those closest to a shared space have less incentive to destroy it and pollute it, and those farther away from that space have no real personal stake in it, then establishing local control would mean the people making decisions are more attentive to the environmental consequences. We'd have the responsibility to face what we are doing to the ecosystems in front of us head on, and we'd feel the pressures more acutely, noticing the decline of fireflies brightening our kids' eyes. Centralized forms of power have more difficulty being everywhere at once. At some point, the cost becomes too high for them to operate on the peripheries, and they begin to withdraw most of their resources to areas where they have more control. This is one reason we're seeing these sacrifice zones in once prosperous Rust Belt towns, places like Flint, Michigan. But if we don't have strong, autonomous, and local power to fill these vacuums, then we just get neglected communities. Communities that are rotting, which incentivizes people to disinvest their time and energy and let them rot more. If we set to work building these strong communities through community organizing, as governments fail to meet the needs of communities, these networks of mutual aid can essentially step in and replace the state. These networks can link up wherever they arise and shift resources around and help each other out. Once again, People know far better what they and their neighbors need than politicians do. And if we create the spaces to make directly democratic decisions together and ways to enforce them, I believe we will find greater happiness and control over our lives. We should seek to establish resilient, autonomous, and self-governing, directly democratic, communities that don't outsource power to politicians, that live ecologically, and limit hierarchy. Luckily for us, we are not without models to light a path forward. On the large societal scale, we have the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico, and Rojava, northern Syria, both of which I have talked about in previous videos. Both places encompass hundreds of thousands to millions of people who have kicked out the government, spread power around to as many people as possible, organized women and ethnic minorities, and set about undoing the environmental damage that state and heavy industry has done to their natural features, all while reclaiming traditional knowledge on how to be stewards of the land. We have the Zona de Fondre, or Zone to Defend, in rural France, where resident farmers called for activists and ecologists to come build homes and tend the land in the path of a proposed airport that would destroy the beautiful marshy ecology of the Bocage. Here, thousands of acres have been saved, ecological homes have been built in a plethora of diverse methods, and a whole localized society living freely and meeting their needs without laws imposed from above, cops, or homelessness has emerged. Throughout Mexico, whole towns are declaring themselves autonomous from the Mexican state, kicking out politicians, corrupt police, and cartels that put profits over sustainability. They have built their own elected, rotating, and accountable security forces to keep authority out, revived traditional indigenous decision-making bodies, established rotating stewards of local forests, and rediscovered suppressed cultures. In Guatemala, communities have begun to take back control over the traditional forests and manage them sustainably and cooperatively, without relying on the state. I spent a day in Copenhagen walking around a self-organized nature preserve in the heart of the city. 
managed by rotating volunteer groups of residents, and watched and listened in awe as the vast diversity of birds overwhelmed my senses. In Jackson, Mississippi, predominantly black communities are building vast networks of worker-owned cooperatives, neighborhood assemblies, eco-villages on community land trusts controlled by the residents, and small-scale production workshops creating sustainable local economies for the area confined within ecological limits set by those affected. In contrast to the state giving up on more and more sacrifice zones, whether in Flint, Michigan, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, decentralized grassroots disaster relief is more effectively reaching people, empowering them to take control over their own recovery and creating long-term sustainability and autonomous sources of energy and infrastructure long after the television cameras leave. Imagine the new world we can build together when all of these people-powered initiatives begin to link up with each other. Notice how in none of these initiatives did I mention politicians or political parties. When we scale down our politics to the most local level, empowering those who live on our blocks to make the decisions that run our blocks, most of the spectacle of partisan politics is no longer relevant. We become just humans dealing with humans. That isn't to say that we won't have problems with each other, but we will have the proximity, the relationships, and the self-interest to make talking it out worth our while. It is time to stop waiting on politicians or tech CEOs to come and save us. They aren't coming. As a matter of fact, they are too busy building spaceships to get the wealthiest off the planet once they destroy it. We have to build our own networks of shared survival. We have to start getting to know our neighbors, discovering our shared needs, and working to meet those needs together. We have to decentralize decision-making amongst all of us, building structures that facilitate working towards consensus like thousands of communities in Rojava and Chiapas have done. At the same time, we can find like-minded communities around the world and exchange ideas and goods between each other, building intricate web-like support networks that blur political and cultural borders. We can broaden our horizons of the places we identify with and that give us a sense of belonging, from narrow and gated geographical locations to any place that shares a common mindset, a consciousness of freedom and cooperation, and autonomous and horizontal governance. This is not something we have to wait on. We can educate each other on how spaces that people call home around the world have began to carve out autonomy for themselves. We can call on each other for support and start as small or as big as we need. The important thing is that we don't hesitate, that we make the road by walking, even if we have to go back and repair the path along the way. Even if somehow we are wrong about the coming ecological crises, even if we have misjudged the crises we already face, we can still come out of this as stronger neighbors, better friends, and tighter-knit communities. And that is a good outcome whichever way you slice it.